The text for my sermon is not that printed in the bulletin, but rather comes from Matthew 5. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm beginning at the 13th verse, where Jesus said to his disciples long ago, and in which Jesus says to his disciples today, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's no secret to you that this Wednesday is the 4th of July. It'll be very obvious as the day approaches because it will get noisier and noisier this year because of the new law our state legislature has approved. For almost everybody, the 4th of July will be a day of rest and recreation. For many of us, it will be a time of remembering and celebrating the proud history of our nation. And at least part of us, part of the day, will find ourselves lost in reflection, thinking about the many changes taking place in our nation, particularly in its values and its morals, and pondering the shape of her future. The results of that kind of reflection for serious Christians is increasingly discouraging because the America that we grew up loving is changing literally before our eyes. Things that were once taken for granted are disappearing or are gone altogether. Such things as the silence of Sunday mornings, broken only by the sound of church bells calling the faithful to worship. And on those Sundays, empty parking lots at malls and around soccer fields. Christmas displays in public places, baccalaureate services before high school graduation exercises, civility in our common life, respect for life, for labor, for marriage, for authority. And things once thought impossible have in fact become common reality. Utter indifference to law, to tradition, to manners an offensive self-assertiveness and rudeness at every level of our culture. Scenes in movies and on television of things once believed to be so private or repugnant as to make their public display unthinkable. Not only in the streets and the theaters of America, but also in its halls of government and education, the United States is fast and increasingly revealing itself to be a non-Christian land. It was not many years ago that in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a teacher's aide was suspended without pay for having the temerity of wearing a small Christian cross on a necklace and refusing it to remove it or to cover it up. And still bubbling on a back burner of our nation's system of courts is a formal challenge to the under God language of our Pledge of Allegiance. And a while back, the Supreme Court annulled a Texas statute that identified sodomy as a felony. 
an act the Bible declares to be particularly offensive to nature and to nature's God. When we think about the changes in our country, particularly the erosion of morality, it's with great sadness that we remember what used to be and with alarm that we survey the present and worry about the future. And especially the ways in which those changes that are taking place are likely to impact the lives of people that we love. But at some point, we need to step aside from these personal reflections about changes in America and the way that we feel about them and give some thought to the more abstract question, what is our responsibility as a Christian people and as a Christian church to try to address these concerns? In other words, the question is just what are the responsibilities of believers living in a culture dominated by unbelief and its fruit? And that takes us beyond to the question, what principles, what instructions do we find on the pages of God's word that would help us answer this question? On this Sunday before the 4th of July, I'd like to draw your attention to a number of passages of scripture that are, in effect, God's charge to Christian citizens. The first of these is in the second chapter of 1 Timothy, where Christians are instructed to pray for those who exercise authority over us. In the first three verses, Paul says, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and deference, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. We're supposed to pray for those who have authority over us. And if we were having a discussion, the natural question would be, why, toward what end are we supposed to pray for those in authority over us? And the immediate answer is why we're supposed to pray, because prayer changes things. If we were to pray with sufficient earnestness, the president's ideals might be changed, or decisions of the Supreme Court might be more to our liking, or gas prices might even go lower than they are. But then we remember we're Presbyterians. We call ourselves Reformed, and hidden away in our creeds and our theologies, a doctrine called predestination. And this doctrine expresses our understanding that before God created the universe, he planned everything that would happen exactly the way that it would happen. And in that same Bible, we read that God and his attentions are immutable. They do not change. They cannot be changed. This means then that our prayers, however sincerely and earnestly offered, will not change the course of history. Now, if this is true, then we come back to our question about the meaning of this instruction to pray for those in authority over us, and we understand that it must have some different meaning. I believe that we are supposed to pray for those in authority over us, not because prayer changes things, but because prayer changes us. We are a divided people in our nation, in our community, and I suppose even in our church. I suppose here this morning, there are those who are absolutely delighted with our president in Washington, but very suspicious of our governor in Lansing. And there are some of us who are delighted with the governor and aren't really too sure of the president. 
And yet every one of us is called to pray for both of these men and others. We're not to pray simply for those we like, those we agree with, those who give us what we think we deserve or want from the government, but we are to pray for every one of them. And we are to pray not condescendingly as if we are better and wiser and more holy than they, but respectfully, Paul says, recognizing that each of these people in positions of authority over us have been placed in those positions by God himself. We pray, not on the hope of changing men or their minds, but recognizing this, that if the president or the governor or the Supreme Court disturb my peace, the fault is not with the governor or the president or the Supreme Court. The fault is with me. And with that in mind, I need to pray for them. And if we pray for those in authority over us according to the will of God, the peace of God in our individual lives will be the certain result of those prayers. The first principle we find in Scripture is that the Christian citizen is to pray for those in authority. A second part of our charge is found in James 1.5, in which we're instructed to seek wisdom from the hand and from the Spirit of God. James says very simply, and yet very profoundly, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And a corollary of this instruction to pray for wisdom is that we should act and speak as if the Almighty has heard our prayer and actually answered it. The need for this godly wisdom is seen at many levels of our culture, but particularly in much of the political rhetoric that is common in our time, and even more particularly in the spirited responses that we are hearing to a recent decision by the United States Supreme Court, especially in evangelical Christian circles. Now, as a preface to what I'm about to say, I want you to know that I share the concern of many in our country and many of you about the burgeoning bureaucracy that is growing in Washington, D.C. I'm worried about its incursions into areas of personal liberty. I'm worried about the fact that more government and more government programs automatically means more and more and more taxes. I'm worried about the smothering, stultifying effect that our ever larger government has on the creative creativity and the initiative that are essential for a people to advance technologically and economically. I fully believe that the widening powers of the federal government result in shrinking rights of the individual. And I see federalized medical care as a huge step in that direction. And I'm very much concerned about it as an American citizen. But having said that, I also believe and know that none of us is qualified by education or experience to sit in judgment of a decision made by our Supreme Court. Legal scholars, men and women who are trained in law and experienced in its practice, have both agreed and disagreed with this particular decision. And not one of us is a legal scholar. Not one of us has been to law school. Lots of us watch Judge Judy, I understand. 
But this is probably law at a slightly higher level than those that Judge Judy enforces. In my opinion, no Christian who has sought and received wisdom from the Holy Spirit will ever be overheard speaking derisively about the Supreme Court or any of its decisions or any of its justices. That wisdom requires of us respect. In Colossians 4, the same Holy Spirit caused the whole, Paul, the apostle, to write, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. This is a part of our commission as Christian citizens. A third part of God's charge to Christian citizens is found in the second chapter of 1 Peter, where we learn that we are called to respect and to obey secular law. Peter said, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you might put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The meaning of this seems very clear. Christians are called by our God and Savior to yield to secular authority and to obey secular law. In America, we have a number of avenues open to us by which our unhappiness with the law can be addressed. We elect those who create the laws and can change them. In some venues, we elect the judges who interpret the law. And the courts are open to us to redress what we consider to be wrong law. But as long as laws stand, we're obligated by our allegiance to Jesus Christ to honor those laws. The Bible gives us no choice in the matter. And this is a broad principle that makes immediate reference to the laws of a nation, to the statutes of a state, to the ordinances of local government. But by extension, it would seem to obligate us to honor the rules and requirements of any organization of which we are a member various bylaws, the provisions and restrictions of contracts, Robert's Rules of Order, the paragraphs and subparagraphs of loan papers and insurance documents, rules of campgrounds and condominium associations, zoning regulations, and so on and so on and so on. The principle of Scripture seems to be that as the people of God, we are required to obey the laws of men. The only exception to this principle found in the Bible would be those very rare occasions on which obeying a law of men would require us to violate some clearly enunciated law of our God. The scriptural principle insists that we recognize and resist that natural impulse to rebel against authority that is native to the unredeemed flesh and seeking the greater good of the glory of God, become by grace demonstrated in faith those of whom the Lord Jesus spoke when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say, blessed are the rabble-rousers. He didn't say, blessed are the complainers. He didn't say, blessed are the critics. But he said, blessed are the peacemakers. May we be a people in this time, in this land, committed to be peacemakers. A fourth part of our biblical charge as Christian citizens is found in Matthew 5, the words I read a few moments ago, Jesus' words about salt and light. 
And Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 to 12, and I, if you're interested in this subject and you're not aware of these particular verses, I urge you to make a note of them. They're in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, beginning at verse 10. And notice what Paul says, and notice how different it is from what we hear in so many other places in the wider evangelical church. Paul says, we urge you, brethren, that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, that you might walk properly toward those who are outside. It's important that we remember that when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, he was speaking to Hebrew believers who lived as a minority in the land of Israel. And when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he was writing to Christians, Jewish and Gentile alike, who lived as an even smaller, despised and persecuted minority in pagan culture. This makes these words of the Savior and these words of the Apostle particularly fitting to the situation in which we find ourselves in the 21st century as Christians living in America. The question that I'm trying to address is this. Just what are our responsibilities as believers living in a culture dominated by unbelief and its fruit? The most common answer offered in the wider evangelical church has at least three parts. One of these parts is that we need to recognize that the moral and spiritual decline of America is our fault. In fact, not long ago, the National Outreach Director of our denomination stood before our presbytery and made this charge. The moral and spiritual decline of America is our fault, they say. A second part of the common answer relates to evangelism and insists that every Christian is a missionary called by God to be engaged in an active, aggressive effort to win the lost. And advocates of this view are often overheard suggesting that there are souls suffering forever in the fires of hell because some Christian missed his assignment. And a third part of the common answer is the so-called cultural mandate, a view that is particularly popular in reform circles, and it's the position that every Christian in general, and the church in particular, has a calling from Christ to be active in the surrounding community and in the world, bringing the values of the community and the world into harmony with the revealed will of God. In my opinion, every part of this common answer to the question about the responsibilities of Christian living in a pagan society is utterly lacking in biblical support. And particularly the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 must seem strange to those who insisted that all believers are to be sounding brass and clanging cymbals, because Paul said that we should aspire to live quiet lives, that we should mind our own business, and that we should work with our hands. And when we go back to the Lord's words, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, the careful student of Scripture has to look at this remembering that light and salt don't make any noise. They work subtly to accomplish their intended ends, like yeast working in dough, another analogy the Lord used. The clear mandate of every Christian is to live a life of quiet godliness. 
acknowledging and confessing the sin in him that mars the image of God, and seeking continually for the grace and the desire to grow in the knowledge of Christ, not to win the lost, not to transform society, but to honor the one who has called us to himself and then died to make that coming possible. And further, our mandate, our calling, our commission is to be always ready to speak in words that lift up Jesus Christ. Whenever someone notices the light that is in him and finds that that light excites his curiosity. A part of the answer to our question about the responsibilities of a Christian citizen is that we are to live among the natural children of men as the redeemed children of God. Our speech and character filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit are ways marked by the virtues of Christian behavior, remembering that the great shepherd of our souls has restored our souls and led us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. As Christians living in the midst of an unbelieving people and a cultural increasingly dominated by pagan values, you and I are called by our God, first of all, to pray respectfully and thankfully for all those in positions of authority over us, to seek from the hand and the Spirit of God a wisdom other and higher than our own, to yield to the laws of nations and the ordinances of men for the sake of the glory of God, and to strive earnestly and continuously to be righteous in our thoughts, godly in our desires, holy in our lives, in order that like Abel, bending low in contrition and gratitude before his altar, like Enoch, whose life shines like a star against the background of the gathering darkness of his time, like Noah, who chose to honor God in spite of the ridicule of his neighbors, like Abraham, who all of his life longed for what he would find only after his death, that we too might show ourselves to be the children of God. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray. Our Father, we anticipate the celebration of the 4th of July, first of all, as Americans. Many of us are already making our plans. Many of us are already thinking proud, patriotic, and thankful thoughts about the history and the character of this nation. But at some point, our God, our thoughts and our use of time transcends these things. And we find ourselves wondering about the changing face of America and our responsibility here as a Christian people. Make us faithful, we pray. May light shine from our lives. May we play the role of salt in the surrounding culture in the hope that others might notice what you have accomplished in us and be drawn to you as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.